our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Acts, beginning in the 16th chapter with the 16th verse. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them out before the magistrates, they said, These men, these Jews, are disturbing our city and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet with stocks. In about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. from cowardice that dares not face new truth, from laziness content with half-truth, from arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, good Lord, deliver us. Amen. It is Memorial Day weekend. In these days, we remember and give thanks for the sacrifices of our men and women in uniform across the generations. Uh, I always, uh, because of good friends of mine whose spouses served faithfully, I always also give thanks uh, on these weekends for the families of those serving in uniform and the sacrifices 
that their families have made, often unbeknownst to us or anyone, quietly sacrificing uh, for our nation. I, I am reminded of the words of famed World War II General Douglas MacArthur, who said this. He said, no one is entitled to the blessings of freedom unless they are vigilant in its preservation. No one is entitled to the blessings of freedom unless they are vigilant in its preservation. What does it look like to be vigilant in the preservation of freedom? For one thing, I think it means always stopping to ask ourselves, what does freedom really look like? What does freedom really look like? This passage from Acts is so fitting because it's all about the surprising ways of God, God's determination to liberate and set free in ways that turn our understanding of freedom upside down. What you discover in this story is that those who are enslaved and imprisoned, the slave girl, Paul, Silas, they actually are free. And those who think they are free in this story, the slave girl's owners, the judges, the jailers, they are actually deep in bondage. This young girl, Paul and Silas arrive in Philippi, and this young girl has been following them around, and this demon is tormenting her and teasing Paul and Silas, and they, this demon cries out to them day after day. Paul finally realizes she's possessed by an unclean spirit, and he calls the demon out of her. And suddenly, she's free. She's free. And you would expect, right, that that there have got to be freedom-loving people everywhere you go and that everybody would be excited and be celebrating that this woman, this girl, is suddenly free of the demon that had consumed, and con uh, consumed her life. Wouldn't everybody want to celebrate that? Turns out, no. Her owners are angry and upset. The Scripture says their hope of making money was gone. They didn't care about her, only that she was a vessel for the demonic to possess her, only that she was a vehicle for their profits. Paul sets her free, and they are devastated, devastated, consumed by fear and worry over their loss of income. And so they haul Paul and Silas before the judicial authorities. And the charges they raise are really quite telling. If you have to pay attention, this is what they say to the judges. They are disturbing our city for they are Jews. Josh Millspaugh preached last Sunday. Man, what a fantastic job. He told you last week that Paul and Silas arrive in Philippi and this is like the beginning of Christianity being spread into Europe. Paul's the first one to take the gospel to Europe. And there they are in Philippi. And how do Paul and Silas get into trouble? How do the owners of that slave girl get them into trouble? With their emphasis. Right? They're Jews. They aren't one of us. At best, you could say that those slave owners are like appealing to the judge's sense of national duty and honor. Remember, we're Romans and we got to do it the Roman way, so toss them into jail. At worst, 
they are appealing to their personal biases and fear. Like, hey, judges, don't forget to notice they're not one of us. They're not like us. They're different. They belong in jail. Paul and Silas get thrown into jail. And an earthquake shakes the prison foundations and they are set free. The jailer's terrified, convinced all the prisoners are going to run out. He begins plotting how he's going to end everything. He knows what happens to jailers who can't keep up with prisoners. Right? He is terrified. All he can think about is the impending doom that will consume his life. But it turns out Paul and Silas haven't escaped. They're right there singing and praising God. As a friend of mine put it, they have a freedom more powerful than any jail cell could ever contain. And the jailer immediately begins to beg, tell me what I have to do to be saved. And Paul and Silas offer him and his family, Jesus Christ, a way to joy, a way to life, a way to praise, a way to real, true, lasting freedom. Who's really free? Who's really enslaved in this passage? Those who are supposedly free, my goodness, they are controlled by their fears. The slave girl's owners are consumed by their economic fears, fear of not making enough, of not having enough, of losing their profits. Those judges are consumed by xenophobia, their fear of anyone who's different, their fear of the other. The jailer is consumed by his fear of failure, his sense of doom as he's going to be labeled as incompetent or untrustworthy. They seem to be free, but they're really enslaved. And Paul and Silas throw them in jail no matter. They're going to praise God no matter what. And that slave guard, her body For once, is hers. She has been released. She has been redeemed. She has been set free. And it all happens through the power of the risen Jesus, through the power of God Almighty. Who's really free? And who is enslaved? It's Memorial Day weekend. We should be vigilant in reflecting on our freedoms, developing an awareness of what they have cost. My dear friend James Howell always observes on this weekend the irony that we have chosen to remember the sacrifices of those who died for our freedom by drinking beer and roasting hot dogs. There was a sign in a Quaker congregation near where I served early in ministry in Winston-Salem, and the sign I've never forgotten it. The sign said, what are you doing with your freedom? What are you doing with your freedom? I've been asking that question the last few weeks, the last few days in the wake of the massacres in Buffalo and Uvalde and the hate-related gun violence in California and just wondering, what, what are we doing with our freedom. And to me, it feels like we are freely and willingly using our freedom to enslave ourselves, to enslave ourselves to the power of violence and fear and terror 
and death. It doesn't seem to matter to us whose life or how many lives get lost, so long as we can say, oh, we're free. What are we doing with our freedom? One of the most important verses for me when I think about freedom, and you know, that's the thing as Christians, the guiding force for us when we talk about freedom ought not to be anything other than Scripture. And so Paul talks about freedom, and he says, all things are permitted for me. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 12. All things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, all things are lawful. I'm free to do anything, but not everything is helpful. Not everything is beneficial. I'm free, he says, but I will not become a servant, a slave to anyone or anything other than the living God. There's a beautiful prayer in our United Methodist hymnal. And we pray in that prayer, we say, Lord, free us for joyful obedience. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first. Like, free us so that we can be obedient to you. What the prayer is acknowledging, right, is that real joy and real freedom, they come when we submit ourselves and become servants of God and thus servants of one another, fulfilling the commandment to love God and to love our neighbor. St. Augustine put it this way. I've always thought this was pretty good. A, a way to understand all laws and, and freedoms, he said this. He said, love God and then do whatever you want. Isn't that great? All you got to remember, love God and then do whatever you want. Because if you love God, you're going to love others, and those will be the controlling emphasis in your life, and everything else will fall from it. Right, real freedom, joyful, life-giving freedom, they come when we become slaves and servants to God and our neighbor. That demon possessing that girl, did you hear, hear it? The demon says that that's who Paul and Silas are. They are servants, he says. They are slaves of the Most High God. Pay attention to what's happening here. The demon is the one who identifies Paul and Silas. Look at them. <coughs> they are slaves of God. It's almost like they're trying to say, this demon's trying to say like, hey, slavery's not so bad. Don't pay attention to what I'm doing to this girl because look at Paul and Silas. They're slaves too. They're servants of God. It's almost like the demonic is trying to use Paul and Silas' faith to prop up its torturous enslavement of that poor girl. Theologian Willie Jennings has observed that oftentimes this is the case. Religion and slavery go hand in hand. Did you know this? I just learned this. The first slave ship to America. Do you know what it was, the name of the boat was? The name of the first slave ship that brought slaves to America was named Jesus. And they actually said, get on board, Jesus, and we'll take you to freedom. Christians in America for many, many years actually, you know what we said was, we said we're actually doing a good thing by enslaving them. Because we're saving their souls in the process. 
Slaves were beaten and one pastor in Virginia. I read this sermon this week. This was the sermon he preached. And he looked at these slaves who had been beaten within an inch of their life and he said, you must have done something to deserve it. Isn't it better that God punishes you now rather than destroying your soul forever? I love that Paul sees that demon. He hears that demon spouting off and he's pretty annoyed. Acts says he is annoyed. And he just stops and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, you come out of her. Like he says, like, enough with all the religious talk, the spiritual mumble jumbo, enough. It, it's such a moment for Paul. Like Paul's there and he says, that demon, that demon talks religious talk. Friends, we need to pay attention. Demons talk religious talk. Paul realizes and he says, maybe, just maybe all this religious talk, all our thoughts and prayers, they might actually be what's keeping this poor girl enslaved. And so he says, enough. I've got to do something. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Calling for more than thoughts and prayers. I don't know, to me, it's a little worn and tired. Right? We, we always say it. Well, we got to do more than pray. We got to do something. And then we don't do anything. And then it happens again, and more children are dead. What does freedom really look like? Friends, I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure what freedom looks like, but I do know this. It does not look like the last few days, the horrors, the devastation in those classrooms. If you read the accounts, it's the sort of thing you should only be hearing about, if anywhere, from a battlefield. And it was a battlefield in those classrooms, what they went through. That's not real freedom. So I've been wondering, for all our supposed freedom, is it possible that we really are being held captive? Held captive by Guns held captive by economics, held captive by a mental health epidemic, held captive by a political system that is incapable of real dialogue. Or even worse, is it possible that our children are the ones held captive? Thursday was Ascension Day. Today is Ascension Sunday, and we remember that Christ, who was crucified and raised, now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Thought about it, the powers that enslaved in Jesus' day, the powers that enslaved in Paul and Silas' day, they're no different than the ones that we deal with now. Economics, xenophobia, death. And Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, and it's hard, but we have to remember that in the end, those things do not win. Those things, those powers will not win. As the abolitionist James Russell Lowell wrote, careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Ascension. Christ 
seated in glory. The theologian Austin Ferris says, he looked back through scripture and he said, there are not many accounts of people ascending into heaven. Only a couple. One, it's an obscure chapter, Judges 13. uh, And in that passage, uh, an angel ascends into heaven on the flames of the sacrificial altar. Another comes from the story of the prophet Elijah, who is taken up into heaven by a fiery chariot. And so Austin Ferris says, it's interesting, where are the flames upon which Jesus ascends? There are no flames. And yet he says, the flame that carried Christ to heaven was the flame of his own sacrifice for you and for me. All his life long, Christ's love burned toward heaven like a bright fire. Jesus ascends to heaven on the strength, on the power of his love for God, his passionate love for you and for me. It is hard to see. It is hard to believe. But that love will win the day. Because perfect love casts out all fear. It is love. It is that love that will, that has, that can set us free. Thanks be to God. Amen.